presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Arizona's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Common Sense Digest. I'm your host, Earl Wright, Chairman of Common Sense Institute National Board of Directors. Our mission is clear and nonpartisan, utilizing intricate econometric analysis to illuminate the intersections between the economic development and effective public policy. In an upcoming study, our economists will shed light on an issue of paramount importance, learning loss and its wider impacts on our economy. A crisis fairly overlooked, yet with far-reaching implications, isn't just about classroom time. It's about the foundational skills and capabilities that our young people need to thrive in the 21st century economy. The data is stark and the conclusions are inescapable. Learning loss is not just an educational concern, it's an economic one too. Therefore today, I am thrilled to delve deeper into this crucial issue, not only to illuminate its complexities, but also to explore the solutions that promise to redefine and reshape education. Joining me, is a powerhouse in the field of education. Lisa Graham Keegan, a champion for education reform. She's an advocate for results-based funding and school choice, tools that empower parents, inspire educators, and most importantly, put students' needs first. Just as we can revitalize our economy by enacting good policies, initiatives like results-based funding can transform an education system into an engine of innovation, equity, and economic growth. So join us as we uptake these issues, analyze policies, and highlight best practices for the betterment of our future economy, and most importantly, the future of our generations. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Earl. So nice to be here with you. Lisa, let's delve into it right away. You are well-informed and have years of experience in this particular issue. The National Assessment of Educational Progress released their yearly test scores dating back from last school year. An analysis indicates that students' learning loss has become significantly alarming, not only in the United States, but I understand that you've had some impact, but not as much in Arizona. Can you walk us through this test and what the numbers mean for our education system as a whole? Sure, Earl. First of all, the they call it the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and it really is a sampling of students across the board in select grades and in key subject areas, so reading and mathematics most particularly. It's been used for decades. It's a very reliable test, um, measurement, and as you pointed out, Earl, this pandemic um, was was going to be a challenge anyway, just by virtue of the fact that kids needed to be away from schooling, traditional, whatever their traditional schooling was for a while. But the decision to keep schools closed beyond when it was essential, uh, as a friend just put it to the Congress, was the worst education policy decision we've ever experienced. That's what led to these cataclysmic um, downfalls in achievement. Really, students were effectively not being educated for at least a year. And it shows. What this means is, so if you're in fourth grade and a year later, you're still in fourth grade, as though though fourth grade never happened. 
you should be in fifth grade and you don't have that knowledge as a child. That kind of loss level is what we're seeing across the country. We didn't see it as significantly in Arizona, but it, it's still, we still, have, we still had backward movement. There's reasons we didn't see it as significantly. Arizona was one of the fastest growing academic states in the country. That only meant though, I'm afraid Earl, that we were just about in the middle of the pack and even the highest levels of achievement in the country are not competitive with the rest of the world in the United States. So we need to be clear-eyed about where we are and not take any sort of comfort. This is hard. Uh, this will take extra time in better schools. So it's not just a matter of more time. It has to be more and better time to make up for this. I have uh, been uh, engaged in conversations about people about income inequality and education being a big part of that. Is there such a thing as student achievement inequality? And did that inequality, in your opinion, possibly get broadened during this pandemic period? So there absolutely is such a thing. It's very real, very predictable, very tragic. And yes, it, it grew. These losses were larger in areas of low income, in areas where schools traditionally are not achieving with their students. So the worse you were to start, the worse the impact um, on the students. The tragedy of that, Earl, is it is not the students. It is not the fact that poor children or children of lower economic means just always learn less because they just don't have, you name it, you blame it on the kids however you want. If they don't have reading at home, they don't have whatever you want to call it. We have hundreds and hundreds of examples of very low income schools that are just knocking it out of the park for kids. So it is ridiculous to claim anymore that this is because the children just aren't ready to learn or the children just don't have capacity. It is more difficult to teach low-income kids. They do not come in reading as, as wealthier kids do, et cetera, but it is by no means the case that they cannot achieve at the same level. So we, the first thing that has to happen is people need to stop telling themselves that because I'm afraid that it gives a lot of people a little bit of comfort and they don't feel like we have to go looking for answers. We do have to look and they are out there. So there are answers to the, I guess, the educational gap. There's, and even during the pandemic, yes. there are some answers to that. Of course. We have examples during the pandemic of schools that managed to stay open. That was the key, Earl. They stayed safe. They stayed open. The kids stayed healthy. Their families stayed healthy. Teachers stayed healthy. It was difficult. This was a horrendous, horrendous thing the whole country went through. But it's insane to pretend that there weren't places where kids prospered. And we have to learn from that. We have to be willing to learn from that. I find that there's so much political fog around the pandemic and a need to proclaim that these um, school closures were necessary, that we won't even look at what happened when they didn't happen and for whom those successes occurred. Uh, we have to learn from that. And that's what's necessary right now. And, and the keys were that the teaching is exceptional. It was exceptional beforehand. The culture of the school was, it is our job to make sure children achieve. And we're going to continue to do that no matter what it takes right now. So uh, we have to go looking for that. And then you've got to focus on how do you get those schools to replicate or grow, sustain, and quit trying to simply improve schools that are unwilling or unable to do what they need to do. Let's go back to this national testing for a second, if we could. 
uh, I understand that these scores gauge student performance based on what they can do versus what they should be able to do. Uh, what does today's current numbers tell us about our current policy structure? What insights are we gathering? And uh, what can we use uh, or can we use Arizona as our prime example? Well, yes, the, the, the beauty of the NAEPERL is, as I said, it really is, a, it's a selective test. Not all kids take the whole test. They're testing individual areas of content, kind of dweeby, but <laughs> that's what they're doing. So they're, as you, as you put it, they are testing what kids can demonstrate the ability to do <laughs> versus simply a sort of shallow um, content area sort of hard to explain, but it goes pretty deep and it's looking pretty hard at whether a child has really mastered, say for example, something as simple as two digit addition, but can they prove it? Can they show that they really have mastered that ability in order to move on to the next thing? Same is true for reading, same is true for science. There's even science testing. So it can be relied upon. We have data upon data for years and years and years. And that data is segregated then by who's taking the test, it looks at poverty, it looks at race, it looks at gender, it looks at all sorts of things. So it's a massively valuable database. We can't let that go because it can teach us. What Arizona can, I think, teach the rest of the country is if you look at what was happening in Arizona and achievement gains, they were coming from a couple different things. One is in Arizona, there is very little barrier to the supply side in education, meaning educators are able to create a school, bring a school to the market. They don't have to wait for a school district to decide they need a new school and, and maybe they can put their ideas into that new school. They bring their ideas direct to the market. We talk a lot about the importance of parents choosing schools, but the only value in choosing schools is to choose a great school. You know, if you're just letting parents choose among a group of schools that don't have high value or aren't innovative or aren't addressing new needs, there's no value in that. The value comes from the mind of educators. And if you do not let them loose, if you do not let them do what they know how to do, in economics, we call that an, an open supply, right? We, we let it happen. We let it come to market. Then all you're left with is what you always had. And the constraints around educational innovation are huge. We tie down the labor market, who you can hire and fire. We tie down the growth market. So growth in education traditionally is only when there is population growth. We don't just put out a new school because it's a better idea. We wait for them to be some population justification. That's we don't do that in any other area. We don't do it in medicine. We don't do it in business. We don't do it anywhere else but education. It's just so constrained, Earl. Not in Arizona. Not in Arizona. So we let parents choose schools. Um, used to be just among the private or the public sector. So district schools, charter schools, magnet schools. That's been open for 20 some odd years. Now that we've added private schools to that equation. So uh, we'll see what happens. So Arizona's decision during the just after the pandemic was the best way to address this was to open up the market even further. Um, Arizona from the period of 2009 to 2018 had more new schools than anybody in the country by a long shot. 
Earl, we grew by 123% in the number of schools. We didn't grow, it wasn't because of population, it was because of new ideas, fresh ideas, um, schools coming to market, they started in the public charter sector, but then districts started to compete and create small schools, which is what parents were wanting. These schools might have been uh, innovative. You know, there's high schools out there now that are teaching, getting kids ready for trade schools so they could go immediately into a trade and then go on to higher ed if they want to do that. Uh, great ideas coming from educators who saw a place in the market. Um, in the elementary sector, a lot of schools focused on the arts, a lot of schools, just tiny uh, sort of pod schools, 10, school, 10 kids in a school run mostly by parents with an education program they trusted. And the academic achievement came along, Earl. So it, it, you can't, if, if, if you're not getting better achievement, this is, whatever you're doing isn't working. But if the achievement is coming and it came in Arizona, the gains came, um, then keep relying on that. The preference of parents for schools that educators develop uniquely um, is what ought to be driving us now because educators know exactly what happened to their students. They know how to fix that if they're, if they're skilled. Um, and if they have an answer, by all means, get behind them, fund, fund them better. We'll talk about results-based funding, but fund them more if they're highly successful and let them grow. There's an obvious follow-up question to that. And that isn't that, are you segregating the results of these schools, these, I want to call them free enterprise schools. I don't know if that's a fair term or not. Are you segregating the results of those schools versus uh, the public option that's available? Uh, by segregating, Earl, you mean taking a look at their results and as a consequence of what they do versus what somebody else does? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, uh, for sure. And, you know, Earl, it's funny. It, it really is about the culture of the school more than the specific educational practice. So you're going to see success in Montessori schools. You're going to see it in schools for the arts. You're going to see it in highly traditional, highly regimented schools that, that look very much like the school I went to, which was a while ago. You're going to see it in open space schools as for older children where there is project learning. So it's not the case that there is one way to teach school, but there is one culture. And the culture says we are here to support the character and the academic development and the capacity of a child. And we're going to do whatever we have to do to make that happen. So the culture and a drive for excellence, Earl, is what is universal across these excellent schools. Um, it is not the specifics of the way that they teach. Um, we're finding more and more that even our testing schemes and how we're testing the capacity of students um, are a little bit constrained and might have been driving a little bit of constraint in innovation. And we need to start asking ourselves, what's the best way to measure um, student capacity. So it has taken us to that place, which is, that's a good place too. So let's figure that out. That leads to the next question I have that in general, the learning loss uh, has, a, has occurred at a crucial time. You know, we're, in, we think, and I think we're standing on a precipice. Not only are we facing mass workforce shortage, and boy, can I talk about that being the free enterprise system with our, our firm, it's tough out there in a tight labor market. 
but the digital era, and I can talk about that too, a chat, a chat GPT and large databases, et cetera, it's quickly catches up and it's forcing new employees to have higher technical skills. And these young people have got to be not only well-educated, but they also need to have a sense of uh, quantitative skills that uh, I don't think previous generations may have been forced to have in light of what's evolving. What steps can we take to ensure our students are ready for this new future? That's a good question, Earl. And yeah, and I think you're right. I think the things they need to know are so much different than what we needed to know um, in some in some ways, I have to say, I still am a big believer that the foundations of language, grammar, and mathematics, there are things in math mathematics that are absolutely true. They're always true. You can't change them. Um, if you do try to change them and you're an engineer, cars go veering off a road. There are things that never change, and students need to understand that. I think that the, one of the dangers in the current moment is this notion that everything's relative to something else. That's not true. <laughs> Some things are stayed, <laughs> they just are the way they are. And students also need to know what those are and how to rely on those things. So I believe that a confident mind and a flexible mind for our children, well versed in the fact that some things can be argued and are relative, some are not. And here's how we know the difference. Here's what a scientific method looks like. Here's what mathematics are that never changes, rarely changes. And we need to go ahead and, and still teach children that and understand they are operating a world we didn't operate in. And so their flexibility of thought and their persistence in the face of problem is that need, the ability to do that is huge. That's why I think we as policymakers can't pretend that we know all of the content or everything that students need to know. I just absolutely um, cringe over these ridiculous arguments over minuscule aspects of the content of teaching. You know, we don't want this book or we don't want this silly story or God knows. For me, it's just an indicator that we don't have enough school choice. If those tiny things are important to you, you need your own school. You need to go find a school <laughs> that loves those issues too. And I hope that it's really small. Great, fine. I mean, we're engaged with the mind and human capacity and a whole history of, my goodness, what built this country in a imagination and hope for the future and all those things. It feels like some of the arguments we have make the human soul so tiny. I want my children to have no part of that schooling. So anyway, I, but but fine, it can exist. Somebody wants it apparently, and that's great. I just don't want us all to have to go there. So choices remain important, but what the kids will need to know, as you point out, Earl, for me, one of the biggest issues is, is a a grit issue and a persistence issue. The answers are not right in front of us anymore, right? This is moving very fast. And to have a mind that is able to be fluid and to understand there are certain things I can base my hypotheses on, but there are lots of things we don't know yet. Those That's critical to know now. We have to trust that teachers know how to teach that. You know, what, what I heard you describe, which is kind of interesting, is we, we are not only training them to be um, productive members of society, but we're also training it, not training, 
we're educating them to also be good citizens with an ability yes. to think critically as well as contribute that skill that they have uh, in a way in which the ec economic progress can be made. Um, I don't mean to summarize it too glibly, but that's what I kind of take away from what you just said. Is that fair? It's fair for me, Earl, and I do think we have to know our own why. Uh, so my why is that all of us uh, and the children that we teach are here for a purpose. We we can't determine each other's purpose. We certainly ought to be able to investigate our own and commit to that. A society doesn't thrive in the absence of service. It doesn't. And this nation and its role in the world cannot be optimized without a belief that we are here for all of us. So it doesn't matter if that's spiritual or, or, or not. It, it just as an active daily choice, I have a responsibility not only to myself and my family, but to my neighbor and to my community and to the world. To, and my responsibility is to take actions that are for not only my benefit, but the benefit of others and the longevity of others. So it's a big, big task. We can't treat education as though it exists, uh, you know, in the presence of one book or not. Or it, it is massive job that we have. Um, and when it's when education is done well, I mean, when just the interaction between teachers and students and watching what happens. And I don't want to be overly poetic about it. It's the hardest work in the world. In my estimation, I've seen it done to my great advantage. I've seen it done well over and over and over again. And the thing that strikes me, Earl, is that teachers who believe in the capacity of their students and who know how to drive that and create that drive in students, that's success. Now, if you keep them from coming to the market with those skills, you're going to sink. And we have to ask ourselves now, how free is the educational marketplace to accept these brilliant people and to support them? And if it isn't open to them and that therefore parents can't select those schools for their children, uh, we're not going to move as fast as we can. So as a media that Arizona has accepted that exciting challenge, and uh, I think the rest of us around the country uh, should think about that challenge and how do we uh, live up to the, you know, answering it. I have a follow-up question on just the, um, what's going on in Arizona. And we had a previous discussion uh, where we talked about results-based funding. Yeah. I don't know if you remember the podcast or not. And how can it help all students across Arizona? And I would like to revisit the topic and ask you this, given the impact and the learning loss, how could results-based funding potentially mitigate these issues if reenacted i just i noticed i emphasize reenacted yes because it was unenacted <laughs> earl it's it, i'll tell you this it, i'll explain the purpose of results based funding is to seek an ideal funding amount schools are always we're always going to be investing more and more and more in schools that's that's just the history of the public policy and education and that's good well arizona has invested huge increase per student over the last 20 years. I was astonished to see the increase. So mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead, please. Yes, that's absolutely that. true. And, and uh, in the last decade in particular, and we needed, we needed to do a lot of that. We had, we had stagnated, but Earl, for me, the question is, where is your policy emphasis 
money is a policy decision and and results-based funding says we're going to do two things we're going to fund students on the basis of their unique needs so you we do that you do that in colorado lots of small p progressive states smart states do that um so if a child has specific needs special education needs language needs physical empowerment then they receive more money per pupil. That's correct. It takes more time. It takes more people to teach that child. Results-based funding is a weight for a school, meaning if they have superior results and results we can all learn from and results that draw more families in, we need to pay that school more per pupil. They need to get a bonus in order to do one of three things, sustain that excellent practice, teach it to others, take the time and the people that it takes to teach what they're doing to others, grow their school, meaning they probably have a list, in, at least in Arizona, they're gonna have a wait list, an excellent school. Sidebar Earl, school choice introduces better and better schools. Parents don't, they don't move their kids from a better school to a worse one. That hardly ever happens. They go to a better school. You have to trust human nature. They're seeing the best for their kids and it works. So you're going to have a wait list at a great school. You need to pay this school enough so they can grow or uh, replicate. Take a core of their teachers who have learned this wonderful practice, whatever it is, and they're going to go franchise that school. They're going to spin it off. These aren't unique behaviors. <laughs> These are business behaviors for decades. I always tell people who think results-based funding is odd, I said, well, I'm interested in what would you have us do? Well, we should spend the money on improving failing schools. And like, well, let's just think about that for a second. If you're the state of Arizona, do you go out and find really horrible medical practices and offer to invest in them so that they can get better? Or do you go to the best medical practices that you know exist in the state and ask them to grow and serve more people? It's obvious. You don't pay people to fail. You know, the attempts, the data on this is so clear. Attempts to improve a school that is not teaching children are successful 15% of the time, one five. Attempts hmm. to replicate a school that is excellent over time, it is over 90% success rate. You will maintain that success. Those schools are exceptional. They stay exceptional when they get bigger or they grow. So I, I, I am really frustrated that results-based funding, which we put in place to do exactly this, to pay excellent schools to get bigger. Now, excellence is gauged on gain. So it wasn't that all the wealthy schools that were already great were the only ones that got this money. They do get it. You just have to put up with it. That's a fact of life. You know, Milton Friedman always used to say, look, you've got rich people, deal with it. Take the things that are making them benefits of excellence and apply it to lower income areas. It's just let it let it go across the board. So in lower income areas where gain is excellent, you want to pay more. This bonus should be twice as much. And it was in Arizona. So because it's harder to do. So that was allowing the growth in schooling, as I just cited for you, this massive growth in additional schools and additional better schools. That's what was helping to allow for it. And as you can imagine, Earl, we're just so focused right now in public policy on everything has to be absolutely equal in some ways, but not in quality where education is concerned. We want equal money going to everybody and we can't put up with differences. 
based on quality, that's what happened. It, it fell prey to that uh, belief that it needed to go away because low quality schools were complaining that they weren't getting the money. That's right, they weren't, uh, no apology. Yeah, they didn't earn it. Uh, the kids weren't learning and therefore they didn't get the money. We don't want low quality schools to grow bigger. We'd like for them to either go out of business or get their act together. And I'm not romantic about it. And I'm not sorry about saying it right out loud. I understand it hurts feelings. I'm sorry. I, I'm more focused on what kids need. And we have excellent schools out there that can serve them. And I want to pay those schools to grow. Lisa, you, you're, you're, you're making it sound as if, you know, they got some of the lower performing schools were punished. But in fact, um, this uh, program, if I remember reading data correctly in the past, total budget of the uh, education budget for Arizona is like 1%. So you took money that was equal to about 1% of your total education budget to uh, set up this, uh, I guess, performance-based, results-based funding, or did I That's miss exactly that? Right. I think I got that right. It was very small, Earl. Unfortunately, we don't have a ton of schools <laughs> that are really uh, just just getting it done, really killing it out there. And they were paid. Uh, and, and you know, Craig Barrett, who used to run Intel, gives a great speech about the need for tension in any system, positive tension. And without any sort of serious incentive to highest quality performance, the tension is lessened. And we just took a hell of a lot of tension out of the system <laughs> by doing away with results-based funding because everybody now whatever equal is, it wasn't that we took money away from anybody. We didn't do that. And we told no, the schools that got it. We had expectations yeah. and they met those expectations. They also have a sense of responsibility. We didn't have to make it a law that they would grow or sustain. They just do it. Excellence wants to keep going. It wants to grow. It wants to keep seeking. And you don't find that in, in cultures, schools that are not excellent, that don't have that same drive. They don't do it. So we can't pretend that's not true, Earl. This is no time for ridiculous theories that have never been proven about how kids are going to learn. Yeah, you got you to gotta go with what you know. Okay. Well, going with what you know, rumor has it that <laughs> uh, all this free choice and school choice and free uh, new schools, particularly the school choice program, is going to bankrupt the state. You know? <laughs> Uh, while yeah. others argue it will save the state money, which I think we have a report on that, that other people can get onto our website and see. Yeah. Uh, we released a full-scale report on ESAs and their impact on the state budget, finding out that the current enrollment trends, the state government should have enough funds to pay for the universal program. In other words, it's not going to bankrupt the state to continue it. But you know, what's your take on what's going on? Well, listen, I think that policymakers needed to be more honest about this going in, Earl, and they projected a number that was ridiculously low. Here's the situation. So in Arizona, in most states, if you have your child in a private school, the state is not supporting that choice. So therefore, people who are in private schools generally have more money. If somebody said to you, uh, listen, the state will pay you about $7,000, no matter where you're going to go to school, you are entitled, your child is entitled to the state support to the tune of, I'm, I'm making up this number because it depends on the child, but $7,000. 
Um, if you're in a private school and you're paying for your children to go to school, are you going to take the $7,000? Are you just going to say, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm not interested. Spoiler alert, Earl, you're going to take it. <laughs> Everybody's going to take it. 6% of Arizona's uh, school-aged children are in private schools and their parents, not surprisingly, are taking a universal ESA because the state has said we want to support everybody. Everybody, including low-income families. In order to get to low-income families, you're going to also hit high-income families. This is one of the premises, Earl, of Arizona's education public policies that's so critical and so different than other states. Whatever we give to one set of families, we give to everybody in terms of choice. And we've been criticized for it quite a bit because the biggest needs are in low-income communities. Absolutely true. But in order to stabilize a political policy, you got to give it to everybody so everybody's invested. That's the best way to move education policy. So what the mistake that was made in Arizona was pretending that wealthy people would not also want an ESA for their kids. They do. So that's where the budget got busted, if you will. It, it, it was completely predictable. I Anyway, it doesn't matter. A lot of us were saying, don't lie about this. Just be honest. So they lied about it. It, it does cost more, but it doesn't in any way bankrupt the state. Arizona calculates the, the need for school funding on the basis of a child. What is coming at us now, Earl, is that we're going to have to change the way we could be in Arizona. But we pool that money, at least half of it, into districts, irregardless of the number of kids or the need, particularly where school buildings are concerned. And that money is stuck there. And so the money exists, but it's got to get around some gates. Uh, so what will have to happen, we're not in any danger in the next few years. That's just nonsense. That's never been true. As this program grows, and I suspect that it will, um, first of all, this rapid, rapid growth is going to, that's going to peak because everybody who's in a private school is going to do one time. They're going to switch in, right? They're going to take the money and then it won't grow as fast. They're already in. So this year is just huge. And that's going to flatten out a little bit because now everybody's in the pool and our population growth is not that fast. Eventually, we're going to have to make sure that the way that we tax and collect revenue for schooling is more or less, it is statewide. We do not rely on these districts, which have a history of really penalizing low-income areas um, from a tax standpoint. We ought to eliminate those barriers, get rid of the district taxation system. That is a big lift, Earl. But we need to talk about why for a couple of years so people can see it. And eventually, we're all taxed you know, the way that we are right now, except that money can go to wherever a child chooses to go. So money following kids to schools they choose has always been the right idea. It's becoming more urgent now in states like Arizona that have universal ESAs. And I look forward to the conversation about why the old way of creating school districts just contributes to persistently low quality schools um, in low income districts. It needed to go away decades ago. Uh, it didn't yet, but this will force it. And I'm happy about that. You're on cutting edge thinking here. Arizona certainly in the educational arena with school choice and the cutting edge. What other steps uh, can propel Arizona to be a leader in national education? Anything that legislature should be considering? 
Well, first and foremost, Earl, I do think this last conversation about finance needs to be taken seriously. And Arizona should play its leadership role instead of apologizing for it. Uh, we are number one in the nation in terms of innovation, school choice, believing in educators and their ability to bring a school um, to students. So in order to fund that and let it grow as quickly as it wants to, you, you got to address the finance system and you got to make sure that is equitable um, and it, that it, there are no barriers to the movement of the money that the public has paid for schooling to get to the schools that most parents want the most. Um, so that's the biggest issue, Earl, and we've been afraid to talk about it because it's politically very tough. When I was in office, my father, who's my wonderful mentor, came into my office with a map of why my idea to eliminate school district funding would never happen. And since I'm a Republican, he said, look, all of your Republican districts are advantaged by this really inequitable system and really, really advantages wealthy places. And I said, yeah, well, they can kick me out of office. Facts are simply facts. We need to be clear about it. And you know, once you explain it to people, it's actually very popular. It's just that people have been afraid to explain it just the way we were with being honest about an ESA. We didn't wanna admit that wealthy people want the same kind of advantages you're now making available to lower income families in, in terms of schooling. Be honest. Uh, about what you were doing in the past and how unfair that was to lower income areas. And people get that, Earl. And I, and I think we have to have that honest discussion. It's time to, time to move. Lisa, it's, uh, I always learn more having a conversation with you. I walk away uh, really, uh, I think, further enlightenment is the word I'm looking for with regards to education, the choices and what's going on. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate all you're doing and the leadership you've given uh, to Arizona and also you're reaching out nationally in some of your conversations. Thank you. Earl, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Arizona, please visit commonsenseinstituteac.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.